couple by looking at a tree. You can't judge honey by looking at the bee. You can't judge a daughter by looking at the mother. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Oh, can't you see? Hi, it's John Amundsen. I want to welcome you to the next podcast in the series of podcasts presented for you by the Psychologist Association of Alberta. The purpose of the podcast is information is timely, topical, and even controversial to the membership. I started off with this song because what we're going to talk about is an article in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology that has to do with judging a book by its cover. So we'll get on with that in just a moment. You can't judge sugar by looking at the cane. You can't judge a woman by looking at her man. You can't judge a sister by looking at her brother. You can't judge a book by looking at the cover. Oh, can't you see? Oh, you misjudged me. All right. Um, the. Uh, the article has to do with uh, a concept called spontaneous trait inference. And spontaneous trait inference links itself to a whole bunch of other areas in our psychological provenance. For example, we'll start off with this idea of Kahneman and Tursky's quick think. And uh, spontaneous trait inference is a form of quick think. It's a shorthand. It is the implications and prejudgments we would have about the appearance or the purported traits that would apply to certain individuals in our uh, social cultural matrix. For example, the way we would react to elders, women, men, children, and uh, uh, racial groups, religious or racial groups. And uh, I, I kind of uh, like this article because um, I, I live on a park. And when I go out for a walk in the park, uh, I walk my dogs. And, and, and being an elder myself, you know, we go to bed early, get up early. I'm often walking early in the morning, and guess what? There's my cohort, a whole bunch of other elders out walking. And uh, as I'm coming forward, my Spontaneous trait inference is uh, task-oriented and crabby, <laughs> you know, elders, right? You know, uh, uh, old, uh, older men, for the most part, in this. And so as I'm walking along, they, uh, the people coming toward you, they have this determinate look on their face, and it's really wonderful when I, I, I go out and way to catch their eye, and I look, when all of a sudden one looks over, smiles, and says, good morning. Now, they don't all do that. Uh, many just go stumbling ahead, and of course that reinforces my spontaneous trait inference. Let's take any group, any particular group we, we can think of, and um, I can watch certain um, ethnic or religious groups that come walking forward, and, and they can have a determinant, and so right away I'm thinking they don't they assume I'm prejudiced. They don't. They're. They're. They don't. They're angry with me because I'm of the dominant culture. I mean, just different things that the trait inference might be about. They're aloof, whatever. And so the same thing when all of a sudden catch their eye, and you can uh, and you can uh, break them into a a smile or a laughter. There was a a, a group walking the other day of um, mature women, and I could 
perceive by their mannerisms and their appearance that they were probably Ishmaeli Muslims. So as they came by, I greeted them with a Yali Madat, and they just lit up, see, just lit up. They were a little cohort under themselves. We're here with ourselves. We have our own social, our own cultural cocoon around us, and they just uh, busted up because it was like, you know, we wonder what others are thinking of us, right? The trade inference of white people. So anyway, I, I introduced this because in this experiment, what, what they found was that this uh, inference is very powerful and can be linked to all sorts of things. And, and the inference is in it. It goes into everything that we think about with systemic racism, for example, uh, uh, spontaneous trade inference. They must be like that. Those folks are of that sort. What they found was in there, they did um, a, a four uh, experimental designs and they found only a very weak relationship between this spontaneous inference and um, linked to prejudicial terms that would support that, uh, that trade inference. And I'll explain what I mean. Uh, in their experiments, they would do things like, say, um, uh, uh, a certain category lifted really heavy books. They lifted these really heavy books. Then they would say, an athlete, an elder, a child, a woman. And then they would list a whole bunch of words that could be prejudicial regarding the spontaneous trade inference. And they found people didn't do that. They didn't link those words. So the behavior didn't lead them, like they would say, elderly man, I'm on the elders today, elderly man lifts a, a, a stack of very heavy books. Then they would throw out the words, and there, there wasn't, there would be things like, like strong, helpful, uh, uh, involved, as opposed to um, uh, narrow, prejudice, uh, narrow, uh, slow, um, uh, uh, um, weak, you know, whatever, right? Any of the other words that they might, weak's not a good one because that doesn't juxtapose well with the, my suggestion, my metaphor here. Um, but th they found that it, that the, the, the inferences weren't, weren't there and weren't there as powerfully. So this is really kind of good for us because, <coughs> here I go with my coughing. Um, it, it says that behavior can, can override stereotypes. Um, uh, I worked uh, in the Emergency School Aid Act in the United States. This was forced busing and it was um, integration. And of course, this evoked a lot of, lot of reactants. And in working on this, uh, we were working in a multiracial context, and uh, you know, our emphasis was not to have people sit down and talk about racism or racial stuff, but if you found a white guy and a black guy and they both like to bowl, send them bowling, because the very behavior of bowling would break through the sort of trait inferences that each might have of the other. Uh, and and so the the idea that you're gonna have people get better with prejudice by talking about prejudice, you know, uh, is uh, is is ain't, ain't, ain't where you should go. You just have to find things that link people in common, and then that behavior that that is that is evidence there will change some of the uh, inferences that, that are, and prejudices and prejudgments that are held. Uh, hey you guys, I, I just jumped in with this other song called The Lion Sleeps Tonight because uh, our next the next review has to do with sleep. Yeah, so I'm gonna, I'll let this play in the background for a minute, you know, just a few moments.
I, I, I jumped into this because it is a popular article, and uh, I, you know, so oftentimes my predisposition is what guides me to speak of the things that I speak to you guys about, and this has to do with sleep. And the story is, you know, the vast majority of elders suffer from um, sleep irregularities, meaning they, you know, they don't go to bed, fall asleep, and then wake up six to eight hours later, they often, there's a joke, uh, I've said it to many people, I said, I have to go to bed at eight because at midnight I got to be at prowling around the house, right? And it's not quite true, but oftentimes uh, as, as a single case study, uh, I go to bed, sleep four, to, four or five hours, then wake up and I might be awake for an hour and then fall back asleep and end up at the end of the, the, the night with anywhere from um, six to eight, nine hours of sleep. Uh, the recommendation uh, we have as practitioners relative to the well-being of our patients should be that people get six to eight hours of sleep each night. This changes depending on who you're talking to. Uh, you know, some will say seven to nine, but six to eight is a good conservative figure and certainly within the parameters of what healthcare professionals should recommend. So why are we talking about sleep? Well, we as practitioners ought to be aware of this as a determinant relative to overall well-being of our patients, but especially uh, to mental health problems. So let's go to a little, a little bit of the stats. Uh, the, the statistics uh, coming out from the research is that one, uh, one in three are not getting, uh, of adults are not getting enough sleep each night. So one-third of the population is at risk relative to deprivation of sufficient sleep. Uh, this is really compounded when it comes to kids. Over 50% of young children and up to 80% of adolescents are not getting enough sleep. The recommendation for children is higher, eight to 10 hours is what uh, would be preferred, and especially for adolescents. And again, I'm, I won't go too far up this alley, but we know the development of the adolescent brain is taking place. Without sufficient sleep, then the distress that is associated with the day-to-day -day encounters of their life uh, will um, uh, compound, uh, you know, uh, problems related to anxiety and all the other stuff. Now. The uh, article that I looked at was a popular article. It said that the CDC, Center for Disease Control in the United States, uh, has, has said that sleep deprivation is an epidemic proportion and it is considered a significant health care crisis. Uh, that this is, you know, kind of national pronouncements by the guys that know this kind of stuff. And the reason that they're worried about it is sleep deprivation is often a first step toward medical conditions like obesity, diabetes, and, and then, um, p p you know, p potential for, for, as people are older, uh, uh, cognitive decline, but also it's both cause and effect in most mental health disorders. When you talk to people who have extreme anxiety, uh, who have a state trait, personality disorders, formal mental health disorders, or depression, one of the standard lines of inquiry is tell me about your sleep. And there can be excessive sleep, but not a restful sleep, or more to the point of our article today here, the deprivation. They're not sleeping, it's not sleeping enough. Uh, the research that this article cited also said that 
sleep is as important as exercise in promoting well-being. So we go back to diabetes, obesity, and mental health. Amundsen's already harped about exercise mitigating depression, and that if we can get our patients to exercise, it could fire up many with subclinical depression, they would fire us. But they have gone so far as to say that it, sleep is as important as exercise, equivalent. So that, so that uh, if you, if you're even if you're exercising but you're sleep deprived, um, you are um, suffering as much as if you weren't exercising. Now, uh, as psychologists, and let's take this on. I mean, you know, keep it in our in our quiver. All of us should work on ways to assist people with sleep disturbance. Uh, I'm talking to many of us who work in behavioral health sorts of circumstances. We ought to have models and approaches uh, to deal with people who come in who would have a sleep disturbance. And we ought to maybe stand or screen for that as a behavioral health uh, practitioner. Uh, <clears throat> the, the evidence is showing that cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, here we go again, you know, CBT for everything, but that it does work. Also practices related to sleep hygiene and sleep fasting and sleep regulation to seize upon sleep rather than treat it as something that is more, well, um, sit around and hope for it to arrive, but to help instruct people on how they can create a regimented regime, much like diet or exercise, uh, in, in relation to sleep. Um, the, the, you know, the biggest thing for most North Americans and our Canadian population is this, this sense of the hedonic treadmill, or another term that I like to use is the fan analogy, that uh, you're running on a hedonic treadmill, and you keep thinking, if I just keep running, I'll get someplace, and everything will turn out, and it's a treadmill, and you're running along, running along, running along, you come to the end of the day, and uh, you haven't gotten any place. So um, we, we look at that, and then the fan analogy that that all of a sudden, you know, at the end of the day, we pull the plug on the fan. But the rotation of the fan has been incredible. Uh, you know, should, must, ought, gotta, what, when, where, when, carrying on. And so you pull the plug and you wouldn't stick your finger in the fan because it's going to keep spinning. So there's a sense of, okay, I'm going to go to bed. And that fan is still spinning. Uh, lots of things on sleep hygiene, about light preparation, slowing down, soft landings, all this stuff. But you guys research that. Uh, uh, this is more of a, uh, a you know, soapbox around why we ought to be paying attention to this. Um, uh, I'm going to introduce three terms, and, uh, and the three terms also pertain to uh, those things that impede uh, or interfere with uh, the, the six to eight hours, our regular sleep hygiene. And the first one is stress. Well, stress has become a ubiquitous term that sort of marches through our, our literature. And, and stress is kind of an inside the skin thing. It has to do with how people are looking at the ways that they ought to be in the world and the, the um, emotions and the thoughts that lead to the behaviors um, on a day-to-day -day basis. The second is distress. And distress is uh, unique or singular events or uh, serial events that take place that lead to this sense of arousal. So maybe even a person who is not prone to sensitivities in their nervous system can be in situations where there's repeated um, distressing events. Uh, uh, so, for example, you know, 
uh, people who, who take on the jobs that most of us wouldn't want, agents of social control, are uh, agents of uh, uh, institutions that promote our well-being. So uh, nurses, physicians, um, uh, paramedics, uh, firefighters, all this kind of stuff. And then the third is duress. And I like to differentiate between these three. The one being an, a, a chronic sense of how we're in the world. The second, events that play into that chronic sense, or even those that are not chronic. And the last one is duress. And duress are the, um, uh, the larger demands that exist in a social, social or cultural system. And a duress can fluctuate much like distress. So uh, most recently, the, the situation um, in, the, in uh, Israel and in Gaza, uh, I've had uh, every patient from October 7th, uh, directly or indirectly, issues about that come up while the world is in such a mess. So that is a sense of duress that can further lead to things that impede our sleep. So uh, internal, um, emergent, and then uh, pervasive uh, senses of things that will uh, cause us to be on the treadmill or have our fan going too fast. So this is my advertisement for why we ought to get involved in sleep work and be prepared to be involved in sleep work and why we ought to train ourselves in that. Three.